First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com slash podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the new Evangelicals podcast. All right, on this episode of the show, I have Bridget Rivera on. And now, I have actually interviewed Bridget a few months ago now, I believe, when we did the emergency broadcast over the Little Nas X shoe controversy and his song that came out. So Bridget is someone who has written a book called... Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. Bridget um, is such an important voice in this conversation. She, uh, she is someone who is in that community, who is able to share how the church has harmed that community and how we as Jesus people who are claiming to represent Jesus can better love people in that community. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Bridget also dropped a pretty big bomb that I personally was not ready for, and I'm not going to tell you what that is. You will have to listen to find out. But honestly, this was a great conversation about um, so many conver- uh, about so many different issues, uh, inclusion, how the church has approached this issue in the past, how we can reconcile perhaps theological differences without dehumanizing people. So I really appreciate Bridget coming on. That being said, I also wanted to say thank you to everyone who has liked this YouTube video or subscribed to the channel or who has given us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or given us a written review. It seriously means so much. If you can please do that after you listen, especially if you like the show, it helps us out so much. It's very easy to do. You just tap on the stars and give it the rating, maybe something nice in the comments. It would be just great to have that. It just helps us get the word out there that this this podcast is happening. And also, thank you to all of the patron. Patron? 
patrons. <laughs> I'm thinking of Patreon, but we don't have a Patreon because we don't believe in withholding help from any for anyone behind a paywall. So everything that we do is totally crowdfunded. So if you want to donate, the links are all below. And again, a sincere thank you to everyone who has helped us out. That keeps everything ad-free and paywall-free. So thank you to all the patrons out there who have given. I appreciate that. All right, friends. Without further ado, here is my interview with Bridget. I hope you enjoyed it. Bridget, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for making time. Um, last time we spoke, we were talking about Satan shoes and and Little Nas uh, X and he, that whole yeah. debacle. Um, yeah. I think I I, I um, promoted that episode as like an emergency broadcast episode because you yeah. literally like the same day I reached out to you and you're like, yes, we can record today. I'm like, great, <laughs> let's do it. So thanks for making the time then and thanks for making it now. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I'm happy to be back. I really loved getting to talk last time. And yeah, I'm happy to be back and to chat some more. Cool. Uh, well, I, I do want to get kicked off here because, you know, at the time of this recording, it is Pride Month, right? Which is a, um, a big deal for a lot of people. And it's also, um, I think for a lot of Christians, especially a lot of maybe evangelicals, Either I found that most don't know what to do with that, like should I should I celebrate it, should I not? Or some are like this is just terrible, we should not be, you know, even recognizing it. But I want to hear from from your perspective, you know, um as someone in that community, you know, and who's also a Christian and who's writing a book, you know, called Heavy Burdens which which we'll get into, why should Christians really care about Pride Month? Like like what is the perspective you think that we we need to hear on that? Yeah, well, I think the short of it is that um, Pride Month is about combating the shame that has um, been so present in the queer community for so long. Um, And I think a lot of Christians don't necessarily understand how powerful shame is in the lives of queer people growing up and the messages that we hear from broader culture, from within the church about who we are. And um, that message is often centered on this idea that queer people are inherently sinful, that queer people are condemned to hell by God, uh, and that uh, queer people are this fundamental threat to Christianity. And that message is internalized by almost any queer person growing up in the church, um, Mm. particularly the conservative church, but even more liberal progressive denominations. um, A lot of queer people still in that context uh, grow up with this kind of internalized shame around who they are, because, you know, even within a church context that affirms same-sex marriage, there are nevertheless still assumptions about what is normal, about what is desirable, um, the kind of person that you want to be. And it's always a straight person. It's Mm. never a gay person that you want to grow up to become. (laughs) Mm. Uh, And so, you know, when you reach your teenage years or even later and you realize, oh, shoot, I'm queer. It's, you know, this often shocking um, and shameful thing for queer people to realize. And so pride is about 
counteracting that shame Mm. um, and speaking truth over that, celebrating the humanity of queer people Mm. um, and um, really acknowledging that queer people not only exist, but our existence is worth celebrating. Um, And that... queer people are not these inherently sinful, inherently anti-Christian entities. Um, Mm. You know, we are people, we are diverse people um, who come from all sorts of different walks of life. And, you Mm. know, that's where the the rainbow kind of comes in, the diversity that exists within the queer community. Um, All of those things are just so important to remember and to celebrate. And um, I believe that Christians can... 100% 100% participate in that um, and join in on that celebration. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a great, you know, kind of kickoff answer because um, I was even looking today on on my uh, Instagram account. I, there's another big, big, big account that I follow and they posted um, just this like it was a it was like a meme of of like the statue of Baal, but like it had like the 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 pride flag over it kind of thing and it was like mm-hmm. you know don't bow the knee was the idea and i mm-hmm. commented something you know to the effect of like hey like you know um <laughs> um realizing that like we've marginalized a whole community group and have hurt them and saying we're sorry like isn't isn't problematic and of course people just i mean you know all the keyboard warriors came out and mm-hmm. a lot of what i saw was this, this response of like you know, that group isn't marginalized. Like that, that's just nonsense. They have big companies promoting them. What do you say to someone like that? Who, who really just, in my mind is so blind and truly ignorant to the reality of how the church has really harmed the LGBTQ community. Yeah, it's, you know, it can be really frustrating. And this is one of the reasons why I wrote my book, Heavy Mm. Burdens, uh, because I ran into this so much. I would try to talk to fellow Christians about the harms, the injustices, the discrimination Mm. that queer people face, um, not, you know, just in the church, but also just in society at large. And they would look at me like I had two heads Like this was an unbelievable thing, like, you know, and they would talk as if queer people have all of this power in society. And in fact, queer people are the ones that are persecuting the Christians. Yes. And the Christians are the ones that are, you know, being (laughs) abused by this monolithic, monstrous queer entity that exists in the culture. Right. Exactly. And yeah. And it's just it's not true. It's a it's a myth. Um, that yeah. does not exist. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when you start to unpack the reality, you start realizing that queer people still don't have employment protection. Right. I, I you know, just a few years ago worked in a state where I could be fired um, just for being queer and that right. would be legal. Um, mm. Queer people still don't have um, protection in healthcare. necessarily. Um, And, you know, there have been consistently uh, court decisions being made that consistently put our protections at risk. And, you know, beyond that, um, in the church, um, I, in the past three months, have had three three friends contact me and tell me that... um, their employer, their Christian employer fired them for being gay. Wow. Uh, no other cause. They just found out that they were gay 
fired. Um, didn't know anything about their lives, what they were doing, just you're gay, you're out. Wow. Um, and because their employer was a Christian, they could do that because that is protected. Um, and that happens all the time. I hear friends getting fired all the time from their jobs. Um, and you know, the, the kind of almost antagonism that exists, yes. hostility that exists yes. um, from Christians um, is just unbelievably overwhelming. Um, and most Christians that I know that are queer and trying to survive in the church, um, they tell me that it feels as if the church like is trying actively to push them out, does not want them um, to be a Christian at all, um, which is sounds antithetical to the whole idea. Like, you know, as Christians, we want to invite people into the body of Christ. No. You know, the way that I was raised in evangelicalism is that, you know, we go out to share the gospel with others and we, you know, celebrate when they follow Jesus. Right. Um, but the feeling amongst queer Christians that I know mm. is no, we don't want you. Yeah. Like you cannot be Christian um, because you are gay. You cannot be one of us. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's such a, it's such a, I don't know, contradiction yeah. uh, to the gospel message. And I also find it, I mean, you could only imagine if an employer fired someone for their Christian faith, how that, mm -hmm. would be, that would be picked up by Tucker Carlson. That would be the next big talking point. This would be the sign that persecution is here. I mean, we saw we saw this, like, I call it the, you know, the uh, church persecution complex in full mm -hmm. swing, even during COVID. You know, yeah. churches, you know, we're, oh, we're locked down. We can't have our huge gatherings. We're persecuted. So yeah. I do find it interesting yeah. that the group that marginalizes people is also so quick to claim marginalization marginalization mm -hmm. of yeah. things that don't even exist, you know, like yeah. they don't exist. Yeah. Like you said, the rules are already written overall in favor of religious groups, specifically Christians, being mm -hmm. able to fire people at will based on, mm -hmm. you know, religious freedom, quote unquote. And we've seen that throughout history, right? I mean, yeah. Bob Jones sued the federal government uh, because they were going to take away his tax exemption status for not allowing um, interracial dating. So he yeah. said, no, you're violating my First Amendment, my freedom of religion, and then he sued yeah. the government. Yeah. So this is nothing new in that playbook, right? Yeah. But, nope, when, but you know, what I wrestle with, and not even wrestle with, I get frustrated with, is I don't understand like why churches like you said aren't welcoming and 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 despite their you know despite a theological difference right let's say someone's like listen theologically i don't know where i land on this issue I find that in church circles, we disagree on a thousand and one things mm -hmm. theologically. Yeah. That almost never stops people from being part of a church and from yeah. worshiping and from serving. But on this issue, it seems like it's such a, a, a mountain issue. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Like, do you, do you see it the same way? Do you see it differently? What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think what you said, I think is spot on. I think it is, um, a contradiction, um, that, you know, we have this understanding that we can have, um, differences and still respect each other as Christians. Right. Um, like we can disagree on very major theological <laughs> yes. issues, major. um, like, you know, things like 
communion or the yep. Lord's Supper, not the Lord's yeah. Supper, like communion or the Lord's Supper, however right. you say it. Eucharist, um, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> baptism, um, these major theological issues that we recognize that like you can have differences of theological opinion. You can approach scripture completely differently on these issues. And yeah, I still respect you as a right. sibling in Christ. We can and still get along. Um, and yet for this thing, for queer, for queerness in particular, it's like, this is the Rubicon that cannot be crossed. Right. Um, and in fact, in fact, in fact, if you think differently than the status quo, you are not a Christian. Like it is heresy. It is oh, like, yeah. If oh, you yeah. think differently, you like, like this is arisen to the level of being alongside the gospel and in its importance to the Christian faith. Right, I don't know, right. like it, it doesn't make sense, you but. You might as well deny a bodily resurrection as well while you're at it. You know, yes. like that's the level we're yes. talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, you know, a big reason for this um, in order to understand why it's like that, I do think that you need to kind of dial back in time um, in order to understand how homosexuality was constructed, um, particularly in the West, mm. um, and how heterosexuality was constructed. Um, and if you dial back in time, um, you'll see that the, the legacy of our understanding of homosexuality, heterosexuality is very embedded within colonialism. Hmm. And, uh, when, uh, um, European countries started, you know, going out and, um, exploring quote unquote, the new <laughs> right. world and, right. um, conquering territories, right. um, in African regions, um, they had this kind of conception. And I talk about this in my book. Um, uh, they, they developed this geography of perversion where they believed that indigenous people, um, African people, because they came from tropical climates, right. um, were inherently perverted. Um, and this kind of sowed the seeds yes. of thinking about um, like it wasn't necessarily heterosexuality wasn't necessarily named yet, but there was a way of thinking about the, the purity of the white race. Yes. Um, that like a monogenesis to, perspective, that yes, kind of idea. Yes. 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 And, um, hmm. so, uh, you know, the seeds of heterosexuality were planted all the way back then, um, in these conceptions of whiteness as the sexually pure race yes. and, and yes. African and indigenous people as inherently promiscuous. Right. Yes, um, that's right. and you know, by the time you get to, um, heterosexuality, it was a very kind of, um, it's, it, you know, even up to this day, it's a very kind of white conception yes. of what sexual purity must look like of what your gender ought to, your yes. gender expression ought to be. Um, and you know, homosexuality was, coined in the 19th century, um, as a way to just kind of define people mm. by perverted desires. Mm. Um, and, um, Freud is the one who, um, popularized the term and, uh, mm. that just kind of laid the groundwork for people thinking, um, about like heterosexuality as being the way things ought to be. Like I am, 
I am a normal person. I'm not just a mm. normal person. I am I am the right kind of human being. Right. I am the human being that was supposed to be made if I am heterosexual. Right. I'm the standard. Yes. And if you are homosexual, you are inherently perverted. Right. Um, there is mm. something that is inherently wrong with you. You are not the way God intended the human race to be. In right. fact, you might even be subhuman. Um, and uh, right, right. Yeah, that, that's what led to um, the horrors of the Holocaust. Hundreds of thousands of gay men were imprisoned in concentration camps, experimented upon. Um, so all of these things are in the background historically um, and laid the groundwork for a lot of the political um, manifestations that we saw with the rise of uh, the religious right in yeah. the 70s and 80s. Moral majority. Um, where they started saying that God condemns gay people um, and started creating um, this concept of gay people, not only as inherently perverted, um, not only as like something that is a twisting of nature, but an enemy of mm. God. Huh. Um, and you just, you kind of see this evolution over the 20th century of, of gay people just evolving into this ultimate enemy that is going to destroy the church. It's like, right. you know, like right. turning the, turning queer people into kind of like this monster, um, this kind right. of like, you know, apocalyptic thing. And you, you hear Christians talk about this, the way they talk about queer people, it really does sound as if like, we, the queer community, are going to be the cause of the apocalypse. Right, like, right. You know, the destruction of society as we know it. And right. like, before you know it, we're, you know, we're going to be back, back in the dark ages because you're of- brainwashing their, their kids. You know, your, <laughs> yeah. your agenda just wants to hurt children. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so all of that just creates a very, like, fraught issue in the minds of Christians because there's been so much- systemic programming over a century of time, over really centuries of time, where this type of person is not just perverted, not just, you know, against nature, they are an enemy. Um, they are against God, they are against me. Um, and it almost makes it impossible to talk to people. Um, because yeah. Yeah. their definitions in their brain are so strict and so tight. And it's like, you almost can't get past it because of a lot of these um, concepts that are so embedded in their thinking. Well, one of the things I think about right away, you know, um, is that people also, there's, there's, at least on the surface level, there's biblical texts, right, that seem to say what those people think. I mean, yeah. we can go mm -hmm. to, you know, I think they're known as the clobber verses, right? Yeah. Some of Leviticus, yeah. Romans, Corinthians. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not asking for, you know, a full walk through every single verse, but my question is, uh, what do you do with those verses? Because mm -hmm. people, a lot of fundamentalists especially will say, well, the Bible's clear. It's so, mm -hmm. it's just so crystal clear. You yeah. know, this, it, it's not about culture, Tim, it, you know, and Bridget, it's not about the past or whatever it was back then, but we have God's unchanging word and mm -hmm. it is super clear that yeah. this is insert the blank, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so what do you say to people who start quoting Bible verses as, yeah. uh, as a way to weaponize, you know, their perspective? Yeah. Well, I think, um, 
the whole concept the bible is clear um i think <laughs> yeah, just I like let's start there <laughs> right right and just say like our starting point is already off because right um what one person considers to be clear um and what uh-huh. one person considers to be unclear really tells me more about those people than it does about the bible 100%. <laughs> no you're totally yeah. right and depending on, on when you grew up in culture also dictates mm-hmm. that i mean how do you think slave owners you know got away with so much the the, the bible's clear you know in their yeah mind. exactly exactly yeah. and um the truth of the matter is that the bible is not clear at all um you know the few verses that speak to what could possibly be construed as just same-sex intercourse, not even homosexuality as a sexual Mm. orientation, just the concept of same-sex intercourse are few and far between in the Bible um, and not really explicit at all. Hmm. Um, And, you know, the big one that is relied upon is first Corinthians six, nine, right. um, Which says that, you know, it's a long, long list, um, neither fornicators nor adulterers, nor, and then the way it's translated is nor men who practice homosexuality, nor homosexuals, you know, something to that effect is the way it's translated now. And then they continue with the list. Um, Neither all of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a really common one that's used, probably the, the big one that's relied upon. And, um, the reality is that, that, word that's translated as either homosexuality or homosexuals. It's actually two words. Um, and the meaning of those two words is not clearly homosexuality at all. Um, the first word is, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this Malakoi or Malaku. I'm, yeah. I, I like, I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek words. Um, <laughs> you sound better than me. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, that word classically in ancient Rome meant soft. Um, And it referred not necessarily to this concept of homosexuality that we have today, Mm. Um, you know, referred to this concept of of weak men. Um, And I could get into it more, but to say that that communicates a consensual homosexual partner um, is just anachronistic. Um, Similarly, the second word that's usually um, translated as homosexual, homosexuality, arsenakutoi, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Arsenakutai. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Either way. (laughs) Yeah. And um, that word means men betters. translated literally. Um, but again, it's not clear because in ancient Rome, um, the culture at the time, um, was one of sexual conquest. Um, they did Mm. not have an understanding of sexual attraction. Like today we kind of define sexuality based upon who you're attracted to. Right. Um, in ancient Rome, they defined sexuality based upon who you conquered. Um, that's how it was understood. Um, so again, it makes no sense to say that this is referring to a sexual orientation, um, you know, where we, you know, define people by their sexual attractions. Um, 
because again, that's not what it's, that's that, that understanding of sexual orientation did not exist in ancient Rome. So right. the, the, the end result, I guess the point of all of that is that it's not clear, you right. know, like even in order to like answer the question is homosexual correct, you know, interpretation of this, you have to kind of understand Greek, the Greek language. Um, right. And it's just, yeah, it's not clear at all. Yeah. Well, I, I do find it very interesting because I've, you know, I've had these kinds of conversations myself and obviously I'm no, I'm no scholar, <laughs> but I've said like, it's interesting how, and we all do this, like Scott McKnight's book, The Blue Parakeet, he, t- he talks a lot about this idea of like, we all kind of pick and choose mm-hmm. how we think the Bible, you know, is applicable yeah. to today. We all, every mm-hmm. generation does that. And I just <laughs> find it so interesting that like the same people who will be like, well, you know, Paul's version of slavery back in the day was very different than race-based chattel slavery mm-hmm. are the same people who are like, God's word is super clear on homosexuality. It's like, well, yeah, how come exactly. we can, how can we, exactly. we can place Paul in context for things that we know culturally and mm-hmm. we believe morally were abhorrent, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden, you know, oh no, there's no context needed here. It's just the black and white word. So I was exactly. just kind of curious. Yeah. Like, like you said, I, just, I was just curious to hear your thoughts on that because I hear people using that argument. And mm-hmm. like you said, the Bible is not very clear about a lot of things. And really, I think yeah. it's more its more that we just don't know how to read it because we weren't born mm-hmm. in its culture. You know, it's probably yep. more what we're talking yep. about yep. here. So, I mm-hmm. mean, let's let's kind of tie this into your book a little bit. So you, you, you wrote a book. It's coming out in October. Is that right? Yes, coming out it, in October, on October 26th. Okay, and it's called Heavy Burdens, right? Heavy Burdens, yep. So what is the premise of the book? I mean, I, you know, we talked a lot about, I feel the way I read you, not that I know you, but the way I read you is that you're very <laughs> passionate about like the church has to be aware of the harm they've caused the queer community full yeah. stop. Like forget mm-hmm. about the theological implications for a second. Forget about where you land on this. Mm-hmm. Just acknowledge that yeah. historically speaking, the evangelical church has harmed people and pushed them farther from the kingdom, not yeah. closer. Is that yeah. kind of what your book's about? Yeah, yeah, um, that's pretty much a good summary. And, you know, not even just looking historically, but looking at the present day that these abuses are ongoing, that Mm. not much has changed um, up to the present day. Um, And so my book, I'm kind of what, what I'm hoping to accomplish with my book, because most books on LGBT issues focus on queer people, um, and queer questions like, you know, is same-sex marriage biblical? Um, right, right, exactly. And, you know, is is gay sex a sin? Like they focus on the, the queer questions and they focus on queer people. And I'm really wanting to kind of flip that narrative and mm. focus instead on the church. What role has the church played in this story? Um, and what does the church have to repent on, mm. to repent of, I should say? Um, and so throughout my book, I share um, stories in every chapter from um, LGBT people that I know, and I share their stories. And then from their stories, I kind of um, unpack some of the things that we can learn about the way the church operates um, in uh, the lives of LGBT people. And so, mm. you know, I kind of use these stories as a springboard to then talk about what are the real issues that right. the church, how, how do these things shed light upon the way the church operates, the assumptions that we make so often about gender and sexuality and the harms that these assumptions cause, mm. um, 
because people just take it for granted and never question. Um, and that the result is, you know, a lot of times trauma yeah. for LGBT people. Well, I mean, that was, I mean, this is a long time ago now, but I, re- I re- remember my first job was at Starbucks. I was like 17 or 18, you know, making mm-hmm. like four bucks an hour, whatever it was. And I was working overnights because this Starbucks was 24 hours. And um, one of the guys I was working with, you know, um, we were talking one day and he's like, yeah, again, passing. He's like, yeah, you know, I'm gay. So this thing happened. And I was like, oh, like this is, this is my first time out of like my homeschooling bubble. Right. I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, like I'm working with someone who is queer. Right. And they, <laughs> you know, I'm like, what do I do? And, you know, obviously I, I'm like 18. So I'm, this is like a first for me. And I'm just like, all of what I've been told, I'm like, okay, this person, I just filled in all these, you know, uh, judgments and assumptions. And it was just, you know, I don't know. I'm just assuming that, that this is what they are. Cause this is what, this is what I've heard about. Mm-hmm. And as we worked together, it turns out like he was a human being, <laughs> yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Who had like feelings and thoughts and was super intelligent and yeah. like really well-grounded. And we kept in touch for a long time. And wow. one time I asked him, we still talk to this day. One time I asked him, um, on the, in, on like DM, I said, would you mind like sharing your story about like your interaction with the church? And I'll never forget, you know, he shared it with me and it literally, I mean, I was like 21. I'm just crying reading this story because wow. he said that like he was young, he's a teenager wrestling with his sexuality. He went to a youth leader and told them and the youth leader called him an abomination and walked him mm-hmm. out the door. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, that was the very beginning of... <laughs> Oh, like maybe we're really screwing this up on yeah. the church's end. Like maybe it's not yeah. them. Maybe mm-hmm. it's us. Yeah. I can only imagine that you've heard that story like countless times. Is that true? Yep. yep. I have heard that story time and time again from so many people. Like it's not a rare thing that happens. It happens all the time to people up to this very present day. Like people think of that, Oh, that was years ago. No, it's happening now. It's happening today. Um, I'm, you know, have, you know, just like now, like multiple people are coming to mind. One friend, um, was, you know, he was discovered as being gay. Mm. He was brought before his entire congregation, um, and told that he needed to repent or go to hell. And he was just a young kid. Um, and, he, you know, didn't really know what to repent of at the time. <laughs> right, um, right. you know, he hadn't done anything and yeah, he was kicked out of the church at, you know, another friend. Um, they were, you know, they went to their pastor, um, wanting to seek help. Um, and the pastor told them you get the hell out of my church and walked them straight out the back door, not even the front door of a back door um, and told them to never come back again. Um, like, <sighs> I, like I can just right, like roll right. these stories off. I know so many people who have had just like the same experience over and over and over again. It, it just blows my mind because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that by doing that, you're doing the opposite of what you're hoping that they do. Like, even if we're going to yeah. play out their logic, right? Okay, mm-hmm. this person just told me that, you know, they're gay. I want them to not be gay anymore, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So the way you do that usually isn't by telling them to get the hell out of your church and calling mm-hmm. them an abomination because that really yeah. won't fix their problem in your mind, right? Yeah. Usually, yeah. I would think you would try and like love them as much as possible. And again, I'm not even, I'm not advocating for that argument. I'm just saying if I was thinking that way, it doesn't make sense to have that kind of response. How much of this, and again, this is just your your 
your opinion on, on this. I would love to know it. How much of, of this particular issue in church is linked to the political conservative ideology that influences mm-hmm. church culture? Because I see a direct oh, yeah. connection. I mean, to me, it's like not, it, it's as mm-hmm. clear as day. But what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest um, rallying cries for the religious right um, as it was forming in the 70s uh, was anti-gay rhetoric. That mm. was one of the biggest rallying cries is whipping up this kind of fear, this moral panic in voters that gay people are going to, the, the big thing that gay people are going to um, molest your children and turn them gay um, if you don't get out to vote um, for conservative Republican legislation. That was the big thing. It was called the Save Our Children campaign. Which can I just Um, mention really quick? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Isn't that the same playbook that racists used about black men saying like, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, they they were dehumanizing them. They they were less than human. They were hypersexual. Right. And like they were just going to rape your women and and steal your children. It's the same logical or it's the same argument just rebranded towards the LGBTQ community. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. There there is a type of. you know, a sex panic underneath yeah. that, right, uh, right. that, um, people that's, that's very easy to arouse people's like most, um, you know, animalistic kind of, you know, responses of like, rah, you're not going to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it, you know, people don't stop to think, you know, when you trigger people's, you know, fear response, yeah, like it's been shown at a biological level, like, you know, in terms of like the, you know, chemicals that process information in our brain, once fear is triggered, people don't start, people don't stop to think like you just react because you have been put into a state of fear. And so you Mm. do what needs to do to preserve yourself, to protect yourself. And so, um, it's a very common political tactic to instigate fear because then you are dismantling people's ability to think critically. Right. Um, and now, once you've once you've instigated fear, now these people are kind of in the palm of your hand. Um, you get them to be afraid of a group of people, and then you tell them, in order to protect yourself and your loved ones from that group of people, you need to vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> How convenient! <laughs> it worked. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, and that's what really happened, um, and we still see that today um, in politics. Um, I think every time I go on social media, I see yeah. something new about how um, gay rights, trans rights, the you know queer rights in general are a threat to the church or a threat to religious. Oh liberty. my God, same. Um, same. You know the culture is falling apart. Like this is an example of like you know how we're you know. It's God's judgment on us, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's still to this day this thing that like gets people all fired up, um, and is one hundred percent connected to politicians taking advantage of that, preying upon their fears and anxieties to win votes. Mm. Um, And Yeah. yeah, it happens. It happens every year. 
All right. I, I, I want to kind of steer our conversation in a slightly, slightly different direction. So I know that you know, last time we talked, um, I mentioned to you that I like the work that Preston Sprinkle does. And you were like, oh, Preston Sprinkle. I work with Preston <laughs> Sprinkle. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what a small world. Um, if, if For those of us, who, <laughs> those of you who are listening out there, Preston Sprinkle has a podcast called Theology in the Raw. He co-wrote the book with Francis Chan called Erasing Hell. Um, for, Preston knows his shit. I mean, I'm not sure if, he, if, he, if I can say that to him directly, but he really does. Like, he knows his stuff. Yeah. He's a, a great scholar, like, you know, and he has, I think it's called the Center for Gender, Faith, and Sexuality. Is that correct? Yeah, the Center for um, Faith, Gender, and Sexuality, okay. I think it is. Okay. Yeah. And so the thing I appreciate about Preston is that for someone who would hold to a quote-unquote traditional sexual ethic, I've never met or heard anyone more affirming and more like the church should be full of the mm-hmm. queer community yeah. <laughs> all the time. And yeah. I love that about him. I, I read his most recent book, Disembodied. I found it really just, it gave me, gave me a lot to ponder. You know, what mm-hmm. are your thoughts? Because I know that you work with him, but he holds to a traditional sexual ethic. So how does that work with you? Like, how do, how do you feel about that? Yeah, so I guess probably one of the big things that brought me and Preston um, to work together um, is the fact that I also follow a traditional sexual ethic. And so um, having that in common, uh, we you know wound up interacting often in different spaces. And um, I eventually, you know, wound up participating in one of his, you know, major projects that he did. Um, and so, you know, for me, as someone who follows the traditional sexual ethic, um, I mean, it's the term that people call it, um, right, the, right. the, that it can be defined, the traditional sexual ethic can be defined as, um, I guess the more conservative teaching on marriage and sexuality. Um, and so that's kind of what I hold to and that's what I follow, Um, And so for me, I see that as just kind of an outworking of my faith and an outworking of just how I approach scripture from on a theological level. I don't necessarily see it as um, a thing that makes me a better Christian compared to someone who has a more progressive um, take on sexuality and sexual ethics. Um, I think it just means that we are approaching scripture from different vantage points. And I don't necessarily see one as being better than the other. Um, I think we're all limited by our own, you know, our own human capacity to understand. And, um, so, you know, I'm approaching it from this perspective and someone else is approaching it from a different perspective. And, Ultimately, I think we're going to get to heaven and, you know, discover that, you know, probably the both of us had a lot thing, a lot of things right and, you know, some things wrong. And so I kind of I see it as just, you know, this is how this is an expression of how I approach faith, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, make someone else's approach um, any less valid, um, make them any less of a Christian than me in any way, shape or form. Okay. I feel like we just hit the plot twist of the movie. Like we're driving <laughs> along, right? Everything's great. Turns out like, you know, 
it's not what we thought. Like, yeah, pff, everything, yeah. right? So, like, I have, if you're cool, then I have questions. Are you cool if I ask you a few questions about yeah, this? Yeah, I'm just, sure. I'm very intrigued. And, and honestly, I don't think I've ever personally met someone or interviewed someone who, you know, would identify in the queer community and then say, but also, mm-hmm. I hold to this sexual ethic that maybe on the surface mm-hmm. is kind of at odds, especially after we just spent the past half hour of you kind of dismantling some of like the more conservative arguments, yeah. you know, of scripture. Yeah. So, <laughs> And again, this is, you know, you share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. There's no pressure to overshare anything, but whatever you want to share, we'll take. What kind of led you there? Because, I mean, do you feel intention at all with like that? I mean, what, 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 what was your Mm -hmm. thought process during that time while you were kind of figuring this out? Well, I think the big thing for me was divorcing the past 500 years of Um, Christian teaching on sexual ethics from what I see as actually the, you know, being a faithful, you know, representation of historic Christianity prior to that time. Um, I think um, in uh, the past 500 years, there's been a lot of twisting of sexual ethics um, that, you know, and even before that, you know, 500 years before that too, Mm. um, and, you know, a twisting of sexual ethics, of, of you know, gender ethics um, to really reinforce this paradigm that women are inherently inferior to men, mm-hmm. have to submit to men, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, there is one kind of holy sexuality, which is heterosexuality, and um, everything else is inherently sinful. I think a lot of these things got attached to sexual ethics um, you know, over a period of time as a result of fallen human institutions, um, inserting their own prejudices, um, into scripture. Mm. Um, and so for me, a lot of, a lot of it has been kind of unpacking and deconstructing that, um, and then approaching scripture, you know, with that kind of set aside and just kind of, you know, seeking to understand it for, what it is. Um, and so for me, I appreciate the more progressive approach to scripture and I can, I I find a lot of beauty and power behind it. Mm. Um, and different people kind of approach it differently. Like some people will approach, um, sexual ethics and scripture as kind of God expanding justice into the world. And, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, with each new generation, there is this expansion of inclusivity. Um, and we see that, you know, starting in the old Testament, um, but then branching outward into affirming women's equal worth in the new Testament. Right onward. And I see a lot of power behind that and find it to be, you know, a very beautiful approach. And, um, I, you know, there's other ways of, of looking at, um, scripture through, a um, from a more progressive kind of mindset. Um, another way is kind of similar. Um, it doesn't necessarily see, um, the Bible is progressing outward towards more inclusivity, but rather kind of sees um, sexual ethics as being an expression of God's justice um, in the world. And, you know, depending on the culture and depending on the society, what looks like justice um, in one culture um, will be different um, in another culture and time and place. Hmm. Um, And so that's why you see polygamy in the Old Testament 
being okay. Um, right. Okay. But you know, you don't see that being okay in the New Testament, right? Uh, because you know, it changes depending on the society, the place, the time. Because hmm. um, the point is an expression of justice, right. God's justice. Um, and then there is um, what I see as being, um, I guess, the more conservative approach to sexual ethics, which is um, looking at sexuality as being um, something that is mysteriously related to um, procreation, the creation mm. of new life. Mm. Um, and I, I really, for me personally, yes. while I see a lot to be celebrated in those other approaches, and I don't necessarily see them to be less Christian in any mm, way. Mm. I, I personally find uh, this connecting of human sexuality to the creation of new life uh -huh. to be most compelling. Okay. Um, and so that's, you know, what I am choosing to follow as my ethic yes. um, and what I am choosing to express and how I live my life, um, how I, you know, organize the you know, the choices that I make in life, right. um, because I, I find that to be beautiful and I find that to be compelling and I don't necessarily see it as a matter of, you know, sin or not sin. Hmm. Um, I don't necessarily like, I don't know. I think it, it's kind of weird that we've turned sexuality into whether or not you're sinning. Right. Um, like, you know, when it comes to other doctrines, like when it comes to baptism, I don't necessarily think that, <laughs> right. you know, like I'm an, I believe in believers baptism. I don't necessarily look at parents who baptize their babies as sinners. <laughs> right. like, why Repent why, or burn. You know? Yeah. Like <laughs> why do we define how we approach our theology of sexuality by sin when we don't right necessarily do that with other things right um and so yeah, you know good. i don't necessarily define my theology by sin and like think of other people with different theological approaches to sexuality as being sinful um, right you know this is the approach that i guess i have found to be most beautiful that i've found to be most compelling um and you know i want to express that and how i live my life how i express my faith um, yeah, and yeah. I can appreciate that other people have found something different, um, yes. in how they approach scripture and, um, you know, not necessarily see that as sinful. It's just, you know, we are approaching different. scripture from different ways. Um, mm. and that's just inevitable. That's just going to happen. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I think there's something really actually, like you said, beautiful, and also, like, it's your decision, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes people can be, like, almost overbearing in the other direction where it's like, eh, <laughs> I appreciate you having this view, but I this is where I land. I, I'm very comfortable here. I think it's good for me. I'm healthy. Mm -hmm. I feel emotionally well. And people should say, mm -hmm. that's beautiful. Like, you should have yeah. the choice to how you want to handle this. And mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned that it's, for you, it's not so much about, like, oh, I am more holy because I am, you know, I guess celibate. I don't know. I'm, I'm using a term here. Forgive me if it's the wrong yeah. one. Yeah. You know, and, and and this person is not, and therefore I am holier than thou. It's like, no, actually, I've just found for the way I'm wired, this is really <laughs> beneficial for me, and I really, you know, feel comfortable here, while yeah. also realizing that people are wired differently and mm -hmm. that that's okay. And yeah. I like that because what it does is it says – we can make room for each other, right? Like, yeah. like we can yeah. sit at the table 
and we can have these different perspectives, and we kind of need the different perspectives because this, this, these issues are so big and so deep and wide that mm-hmm. clearly not one human can have the right perspective on everything. Yeah. And through that, I think diversity is when you have like true unity, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like, yeah. hmm, you know, I am not wired like Bridget, and Bridget's not wired like me, and that's yeah. a good thing because mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't need any more Tims in the world. You know, one is yeah. fine. Yeah. And I think that that that's a really, I think, just beautiful perspective to hold, and it it it, it makes room, which I like, because mm-hmm. I I think I struggle as someone who grew up in a fundamentalist space, was homeschooled, and then over a long story short, deconstructed, you know, and now mm-hmm. find myself way more in like progressive schools of thought especially biblically, I don't want to become a fundamentalist of the other side either. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, I really don't want to become this other extreme of like, no, this is the only right way because I know how damaging that can be. Yeah. But I do find it difficult sometimes for my personality type to live in the tension because when I, when, I, when I see something that is so wrong or, or I read a book showing the history of how yeah. screwed up it is, I'm just yeah. like, it's so clear, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I totally get that. I think that. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I can definitely relate to the, um, growing up in a homeschool conservative (laughs) evangelical culture and, uh, deconstructing from that. It's, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a journey for sure. Yeah, it's a journey. You know, I think one of my last questions for you is I, I, I do kind of want to get your thoughts on the deconstructing community from like what you've seen. Obviously, it's a very big term. Mm-hmm. It's like saying evangelical, right? It means so much. But I'm sure you're aware of what's happening with a lot of people like me and, and millions of us, including you probably, who are just like, okay, I want to be more committed to Jesus than ever. And I've only learned how to do that one way, but I'm losing that way. And now I'm like mm-hmm. discovering this whole new world of Christian thought that I never even knew was a thing. You know, what are yeah. your thoughts on the deconstruction or deconstructing movement? You know, are, do you consider mm-hmm. yourself a, a part of that movement? And where do you see it going long term? Yeah, um, I, I guess I guess I kind of have to, you know, consider myself a part of the deconstructing or deconstruction movement because I've participated in so much of it. And yeah. Um, you know, contributed to, you know, a lot of the deconstruction process when it comes to gender and sexuality. And now I have a whole book basically, um, hopefully walking Christians through just deconstructing some of the harmful, you know, assumptions about gender and sexuality that we have. Um, so yeah, I guess I kind of have to consider myself a part of the deconstructed community and, Um, I guess for me, I think deconstruction can be a really healthy thing. Mm. Um, I think that it can really set you free in a lot of ways, because I think a lot of us, um, I think everybody, um, are holding so many chains are bound up by so many chains, um, from our religious upbringing, things that we were told were essential in order to go to heaven that are not. Um, and I think that the deconstruction process is really a process of tearing down those prison walls and realizing that they, you know, that they can't hold us in any longer. Um, and I think, yeah, so I really, I really think the deconstruction process is super important. Um, I think that if you are, if your intention is to stay in the Christian faith, it's, you know, essential to not just leave it at deconstruction. Hmm. Um, if, if you're wanting to leave Christianity and you're wanting to move on and find other things, then, you know, you can just leave it at deconstruction and then move on. But if you're wanting to hold on to your faith, um, you have to, you know, 
not just stop at deconstruction, but also begin a process of approaching scripture, approaching Jesus um, from a different starting point um, than, you know, the starting point that you've been given. Yeah. Um, And so, um, you know, I think that is just going to take time and, um, you know, I think that takes, I mean, in my life, I've found the best, um, I guess, source of that has been, uh, just going to the Bible, um, and understanding it more deeply and reading scholars that have done this work already. Yes, yes, Um, exactly. Reading um, feminist Christian scholars in particular has been like a huge source of encouragement for me and helping me realize that my faith um, is not limited to this prison that I was given for so long. Um, And so, you know, that that work is out there. It exists. It has been done. And so, you know, go, you know, read those books, dig into scripture, you know, from a healthier perspective and like start start building up your faith from a healthier foundation. I totally agree. I mean, the, you know, I, I've read, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. That was mm-hmm. an amazing book. Um, yeah. the making of biblical womanhood's on my list that those yeah. two books alone have like taken the deconstructing world by storm, you know, and honestly yeah. Yeah. reading Jesus and John Wayne, like it blew my mind. It was just like, wow. And on top of that, you have, uh, you have, a- we live in a time where we have access to scholars for free. Yeah. Like on YouTube, <laughs> on their own podcast, Pete Enns, Tim Mackey, N.T. Wright, you know, David Gushy, et cetera. You know, these are guys and, and girls who are just like, like you said, they've done the hard work and, and they've been gracious enough to allow us to reap their, you know, the fruit of that. Yeah. And so I found that, like you said, through kind of rebuilding and like reassembling pieces, I found the Christian faith more beautiful and robust than ever. Um, which is actually very freeing, <laughs> but it, it can be, it can be tough to get there in the beginning. You know, I think deconstruction yeah. in the beginning is very like disorienting as Pete Evans would say. Yeah. So. It can be scary. It yes. can yeah. definitely be scary. I agree. Well, listen, um, Bridget, I appreciate you again, making time really great talk. I mean, just a treasure trove of just knowledge and insight and perspective. When does your book officially come out? Where can we find it? Where can we find you? Give us all that good stuff. It comes out officially October 26th, but if people want to pre-order it, which I would just 100% love you if you pre-ordered my book, because that really gives it a good, you know, a good uh, launch in the first week of being out, um, then uh, you can pre-order it on Amazon at um, amazon.com, just like search for Heavy Burdens by Bridget Eileen Rivera. Um, you can also um, find other retailers on my website at BridgetEileenRivera.com. So um, pre-order it, check it out. Uh, it's coming out October 26th. And yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, I'm excited too. I can't wait to read it. Thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.